Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Pogson and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 7, we celebrate the 40th anniversary of one of the biggest films of all time, the original John Williams score to Star Wars A New Hope. In part 1, we'll be deconstructing all of the main themes from Star Wars, listening to how Williams develops these iconic themes across the course of the entire movie, along with looking at potential influences for John Williams during the writing process for this film. It's sure to be a pure nerd fest. And joining me on this journey to a galaxy far, far away is composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor, and heir to the second biggest moisture farm on Tatooine. It's Nicholas Buck. How are you doing? Good evening, gentlemen. And yes, you've got me there. I, in fact, do have the second biggest moisture farm. (laughs) It's how I made my millions, not as a musician. But by growing moisture, and and I guess the question in everyone's mind is: um, Is the first bigot biggest uh, uh, Luke and friends, or I don't know, are they third? Because um, it looks pretty shabby. Yeah, it is. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm we'll, not sure. We'll I can't never know. That. We'll never know. <laughs> and having recently returned from his time in an isolated desert cave, is writer, critic, university lecturer, and blue milk connoisseur. It's Dan Golding. That is a name I have not heard for a long time. <laughs> A long time. I love it. I yeah. love it. <laughs> so here we are. We've uh, finally got to, well, it didn't take us long to get to probably uh, one of my favorite scores mm, uh, of all too. time. And uh, But it's, it's, um, it's the right time to do it because we are in the 40th year uh, mm. of Star Wars A New Hope. I guess at the time it was just called Star Wars, mm. uh, but we now know it as Star Wars A New Hope or Episode 4. And uh, we've been really looking forward to this one. We've all been putting in the hard yards and uh, watching the film a whole bunch of time, which are very arduous. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's very exciting. Are you looking forward to this one, Nick? I am. I am. And especially the score. I mean, you know, people always throw that question around of what is the greatest film score. And Star Wars is definitely up there. Greatest is hard to quantify, um, but certainly I would have to say it's one of the most influential Mm. Um, film scores ever written, you know, and it really caused not only the film but also the music a whole generation to to look at the way we hear film music ever since, really. Well, I, I think it's one of those scores that even people who haven't seen the film, which you know, there are those people who exist. I, mm-hmm. I discovered them the other day. They still know the music, mm-hmm. and there aren't too many movies where everyone knows the music. Little kids, toddlers, they know the music. Like, how does this happen? Yeah, I mean, with all of the films where that happens, it's probably a John Williams score. Uh, you know, Superman, Indiana Jones, uh, those, those. You know, maybe James Bond is the Norm Williams one that has that incredible recognition. But yeah, it's. Incredible incredibly influential and the film as well and uh due to how big this you know this score in this movie is uh i want to get a little plug if you guys will let me i'll get a little plug here if you haven't subscribed yet to this podcast you know hit subscribe uh, send us a rating send us some questions on uh you know on twitter at art of the score and instagram at art of the score also and if you have a star wars friend who's just all into star wars uh maybe this is the episode to get them get them into it mm-hmm. because i am hoping 
this is my plan with this episode, that not only are listeners going to be learning a whole bunch about this, I'm hoping that I'm going to be learning a whole bunch about this, even though I've really tried to study hard on this this uh, for this episode, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that these two smart chaps here are going to um, blow my mind with, with a couple little tidbits. So, without further ado, Dan... Do you want to kick us off with a little bit of history of where Star Wars sits? Yeah, well, I mean, it's enormously influential. I mean, you were saying before about this might be the episode to get people uh, in, interested in this podcast. Well, I mean, this is the film and the score that got me interested in both cinema and film music. Oh, me so, too. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's... <laughs> me three. Yeah, <laughs> enormously influential in that sense. And so, I mean, so Star Wars arrives at a point where Hollywood is in crisis, actually, uh, and really changed the course of filmmaking history i think you you don't have to squint too hard or make any sort of strange side arguments to argue that i think that's fairly unequivocal so uh you know in the 50s and 60s these big hollywood films had been very expensive but not making very much money cleopatra from 1963 is the famous example the elizabeth taylor one where she has you know something like 50 costume changes over the course of the film (laughs) that was the biggest film of that year and still almost bankrupted this studio that made it and so basically there's all these you know all sorts of big ramification changes in Hollywood that means that they don't know how to make movies anymore. Universal, for example, no, sorry, Warner Brothers is owned by a car park company uh, and a cleaning company. And so these executives don't know how to make movies. And this young generation of filmmakers who've been to university, they're the first filmmakers in history that go to university to learn how to make film instead of doing their apprenticeship, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a studio. Uh, They start making films. And so we get people like Francis Ford Coppola, we start getting people like Steven Spielberg and we get George Lucas. And Spielberg, of course, changes things in 1975 with Jaws, which is, you know, massive. It's the first real blockbuster. Uh, as we, we heard in a, f- a few, few weeks ago, I think, you know, blockbuster mean literally busting blocks, queues around the, around the block um, to see these sorts of films. Star Wars comes along in 1977. Uh, it is 40 years ago uh, on May the 25th and it opens. It's a smallish film. People think it's this weird, you know, George Lucas is a weird kid. You know, he had success with American Graffiti before uh, and had made uh, THX 1138 beforehand and single-handedly pretty much bankrupt American Zoetrope. That um, that movie, I watched that again recently. That's a weird movie. It, it is weird, yeah. Like I mean, even for modern eyes, it's a weird movie. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, uh, I could go on for a while about the links and lack of links between his later films. But after that, I mean, essentially he was challenged by Coppola um, and a few of the other people around him to sort of say, make something warm, make something human. And he said, all right. And then he made American Graffiti, which is incredibly, you know, it's a nostalgic, beautiful film in many respects. And then he goes on to combine the two really in Star Wars. And people think, you know, at this point in history, firstly, science fiction was this weird sort of, Genre, You know, like 2001 and Planet of the Apes have been around. There were these big message films. Mm. And so, people expected you're going to go and see a sci-fi film. You're going to be beaten about the head with some sort of allegory. And, you know, from the first words, literally the first words of the film, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it says, you don't have to worry about this. 
Yeah. This is escapism. This is fantasy. And it taps into this rich history of American sort of B-serials, Flash Gordon, um, you know, the Errol Flynn, uh, uh, Robin Hood, you know, swashbuckling type type movies that people had really loved but had never really been done well because nobody had given them massive budgets, you know, certainly with the serials. So, was Lucas like a big-time nostalgia guy? Because yeah. if, if you've got American Graffiti, which is set in the 50s, mm-hmm. is that correct? Yep, that's right. And then you have uh, this movie, which is sort of futuristic but they say right off the bat that mm. it's a long time ago mm-hmm. so it's also a nostalgic sort of look back absolutely um and of course a nostalgic look back on the old days of cinema yeah well no absolutely i mean frederick jamison who uh, was a, a intellectual who um theorized the idea of postmodernism, most famously um called star wars the nostalgia film like the, it's the king in his sort of theory this idea that film starts to look backwards and and look upon its past successes i suppose in a mm. way and so this goes against what the kinds of films are being made at the time i mean you have films like jaws and the godfather and the exorcist but really they're, they're sort of few and far between it's more like you have this what people call new american cinema or new hollywood um in the late 1960s films like easy rider the graduate bonnie and clyde those sort of more like meaning films i suppose films that have a great meaning for their generation you know young kids coming through seeing films about themselves and this sort of you know george lucas specifically you know he said he wanted to make a fairy tale he wanted to provide this sort of good and evil morality tale you know as distinct from the kinds of morality tales we get with planet of the apes in 2001 it's sort of you know good and bad cowboys and indians and you know sort of goes back to that myth in a way and pushes that into into space and you know it transforms the industry it's the highest grossing film of all time by some margin at the time basically everybody overnight goes oh we're going to make these blockbuster star wars special effects extravaganzas a lot of them do it wrong but you know Star Wars not only changes the kinds of films that are made in Hollywood, it changes the entire business model because then people start realizing you can make serious money off merchandise and tie-in products, which George Lucas very cleverly kept to himself, um, the rights. Yeah. But he also, never ended up selling that to anyone, did he? No. To no his, well, not until Disney. Well, until Disney, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the other thing that it institutes is the idea of a sequel. Really, through American filmmaking history, the only sequel that anybody really cared about was The Godfather 2 mm-hmm. before before The Empire Strikes Back, which is sort of outside of the remit of what we're talking about today. But, you know, that really changed the model of Hollywood to today where every film is based on something, some franchise, you know, some pre-existing, pre-sold property is what they call it. And, you know, before that, like, for example, Casablanca, enormously successful film, there's no Casablanca 2. What there is, is there's a film called, I don't know if either of you have seen it, it's called Passage to Marseille. And it's uh, the same director, Michael Curtis. Uh, it's got Humphrey Bogart in it. It's got a whole bunch of different stars. It's set in the World War II time period. Similar sort of plot line. It's about, you know, smuggling people. And it's weird and makes not a lot of sense. There's a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> the original but, Inception. Yeah, yeah. And this this was the model of making sequels before this. Yeah, you right. made sort of a similar film. And then but you never put, you know, a two or yep. whatever under, you know, at the end of it. Exactly. And so Star Wars, you know, tra- you know, changes what kinds of films are made. It changes the entire industry model which is to expand to be more of an entertainment industry rather than just making films. And it changes the model of the franchise or it establishes the model of the franchise. Can I ask, Dan, was Star Wars, was there anticipation for this film? Like, oh my God, this Williams Mm. epic is coming out. Or was it just literally, you know, open in a few cinemas and then boom, overnight? No, it, it spread. It opened in something like 35 or 36 cinemas to begin with. 
And this is another thing, actually. So, in the 1970s and before then, most films would open on what was called a platforming model. So, you'd open, you'd, you'd, you know, first you'd take Manhattan, right? You'd, you'd open in New York and LA and then move to the smaller towns once you'd been there for a couple of weeks. Jaws didn't do that. It opened pretty much everywhere overnight. And then Star Wars, you know, sort of followed that. And once they realized it was a success, it very quickly built onto many, many, many more cinemas. And you started to have this, you know, like George Lucas goes on holiday after Star Wars is released with Steven Spielberg and Marshall Lucas, who was the editor of Star Wars and his wife at the time. And they're sitting on the beach in Hawaii, I think it is. And this is where Raiders of the Lost Ark comes from. They, they, they have that conversation. But Alan Ladd Jr., who was the producer at 20th Century, calls up Lucas and says, George, you've got to turn on the news you got to you got to see what's going on. And Walter Cronkite, who was the news anchor who told America that JFK had been shot, he was the voice of current affairs, is there on TV reporting about people lining up around the block to see this film, Star Wars. And, you know, the industry turns on its head. I mean, you know, apart from that, we could talk about the influence of the music. We could talk about the, the special effects as well. Special effects, visual effects, houses did not exist before Star Wars. Industrial Light and Magic was formed to cater for Star Wars. And, you know, um, this entire sort of computer um, uh, model system, they aren't computer models, but the movements of the camera create uh, control by computers, the Dijkstra cam by John Dijkstra. It, it's transformed overnight. And goes on to lead to Jurassic Park, for example. It has a direct. So it really was an overnight success, and and obviously quite a transformative one. Hugely, no, probably no other film has had that single effect on the entire industry as much as Star Wars. Well, that probably uh, is a nice little warm up to looking at some of the main themes. We're going to get straight into the music now, and there is probably let's start let's start at the top. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. yeah. Well, well. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's worth noting as well that this is not what films were supposed to sound like at the time as well. This was a massive throwback to an older era of film music because, as I said before, films like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate both use pop music or there's a lot of banjo music in Bonnie and Clyde. They didn't commission big scores, even John Williams before Star Wars. Like Jaws is a fairly large orchestra. Um, but before then, he's dealing in much smaller ensembles. There really isn't this demand for a large orchestra And, and let's sound. not, you know, I guess before we play the main theme, um, mention the fact that, I mean, John Williams was sort of introduced to George Lucas by Steven Spielberg. Mm. Um, and Lucas, from what I hear, sort of wanted more like a sort of 2001 Stanley <laughs> Kubrick right. yeah. type score, you know, mm-hmm. using existing uh, classical music to to convey this this outer spaceness, and luckily for for history, for music fans, and for film fans, John Williams got the gig. And um, look, you know, we can talk about as we go along how those two kind of worlds met, the classical and 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 John Williams style, and how mm. he really fused them into what has really become a very very influential score. And uh, I guess one of the reasons why I interrupt you before we leap straight into the, I, the main I had my score. finger I had my finger on the button Dan, yeah. <laughs> and I, w- I was going to hit it, but you've you've stopped me. Is that I think before we start with the main fanfare, okay, it's important to start actually with this. And the reason why it's important to start with that, I think, is because 
this theme, this is Alfred Newman's 20th Century Fox fanfare, had, be, you know, gradually been cut up and cut up and cut up right back to that original, just the dum ba dum ba dum da dum da dum that da-da-da-da, that had been disused since decades. And it was specifically revived for this film by Williams. Mm. It's sort of a throwback to this old era. Alfred Newman was this, you know, old school, golden age Hollywood composer. And so he's bringing back that specific link. And it's then in the same key. And that key is? Uh, B-flat major. B-flat major. <laughs> and look, I, I, every time now I hear that 20th Century Fox fanfare, all I can hear after is that sort of, you know, seven seconds of silence and then pfft, Star Wars main theme. And then... It's uh, it's incredible. I mean, that first chord, that just B flat. I mean, that's it's. You got to think about what we're seeing as well. We're seeing the Star Wars logo on screen. It's the biggest logo you've ever seen. Yep. <laughs> combined with the biggest chord you've ever heard. Yeah, yeah it's and a real impact, isn't it? It yeah. is. And and before we go on to analysing that that main theme, uh, which we definitely will in one moment, uh, something I wanted to very quickly touch on with that that 20th Century Fox fanfare is that the recording is actually the original 1950s recording. And they didn't re-record it. It's not the London Symphony Orchestra, you know, so it's got that really old sound. And we have another very quick listen to it. Just, it's, you know, sonically... It sounds very different. And then there's the silence. And then we get this. The, the sonic difference between yeah. those two, I think even that is impactful. That you've got something that sounds sort of like tinny little speakers and a tinny little microphone, and then all of a sudden that glorious, mm. you know, kaboom and I think over the, the top. Fact that, um, like Dan mentioned, there's that little intertitle a long time ago. You know, you're hearing an old recording, you're seeing something that's reminded you of the past, mm. and all of a sudden, yeah, you're blasted into the future yeah. Yeah. Um, in sonic splendor. And, and it's, it's almost like, sort of like, here's how we used to do it. And here's how we do it now. Like, you know, that yeah. sort of like, we can do these kinds of things that we used to do, these kind of adventure serials, but now we can actually make the effects look really good. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's uh, let's look at this theme a little more closely. Nick, what, what can we, uh, what can we so look, look at? So, as look, a, as a theme, I mean, there's, there's many things to discuss here. One of it, I mean, we just got to talk orchestration and is that, you know, Williams chooses to place this theme on, on trumpets, all three of them in unison. It's a nice heroic key of B flat. Trumpet, trumpet players out there will know that there are two main types of trumpets, trumpets in C and trumpets in B flat. They're the, the main standard concert trumpets. So they have this perfect kind of open ring about them, which is so is so beautiful. And the theme is very... It's very trying. It's very uplifting. It's very positive. I mean, these are things that we discussed in episode one with Raiders of the Lost Ark. But here, 
John Williams employs something that he would do for many years to come whenever he's writing for an action epic, which is the perfect fifth. You know, and it's one of the most noble intervals. That's why they call it perfect. You know, really, the opening leap sort of says, you know, we're going for a big try here. And then there's sort of like gathering strength, I guess you'd say, for another try. And then we leap right up. You know, did we make it? Who knows? Let's go again. And then, yeah, that was pretty good. You know, let's just kind of take a little chill. Then, they, then, then the theme does it again. So it's very just symbolically in the intervals, mm. you know, says, says a lot about what we're aiming for. And none of the phrases end on the tonic of the... No, yeah. no, they don't. It's always, yeah, it's always kind of propelling or... Yeah. yeah, so it's never quite resolved. It's never... No. And look, speaking of, of you know, I guess unresolvedness, this sort of B theme that he kind of uh, introduces... Um, you know, harmonically, there's a lot of suspensions going on, and suspensions I'm sort of talking about where the kind of the dominant chord is kind of skewed a bit. So here we sort of have an E flat major chord on an F. So it's you know we've gone from B flat, nice kind of open chords, and then we sort of bit of resolution. Then we go again, you know. It's it's very and John Williams does this a lot with some of his sort of inner workings of themes where they're not obvious, you know, op- open major minor chords and it, and, it, and it creates that real sense of anticipation. Where could it leap next? And from there, ooh, bit of a surprise, you know, and then a bit kind of comfortable again. Then he moves the harmony. You know, and it's almost a bit kind of jazzy in there. Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we're getting comfortable. <laughs> and then he kind of brings out this really odd kind of descending phrase, but it's sort of ascending from the bottom as at the same time. More suspensions. Anticipation. Ah, resolution. And then we're back to that B flat. So really that, that opening B flat major chord, apart from... The, the very first bum, bum, that opening fourth leap, we kind of don't hear it again for the entire melody. Mm. So it's a real, when we do get back to it, it's a real sense of, oh, now we're back and, and we're starting again. So I, I find that, yeah, the, the construction of that theme, really, really in- interesting. And it's all about heroics and anticipation, which really is what the film is yeah, wanting totally. us to, to believe. Totally. Mm. Probably important to say, I mean, we're calling this the main title theme, mm. but uh, really, Dan, this has um, technically can be called someone else's theme. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's Luke's theme, really, as far as this film is concerned. And really, actually, to be honest, as far as the entire franchise is concerned, I mean, they use it for the opening titles and the prequels, but it's actually not really in the prequels, except when Luke is on screen in Revenge of the Sith, yep. you know, in the tiny... Uh, half a scene where he's a baby so it is really associated with Luke this is our hero and it's sort of you know and maybe we'll talk as we proceed about how it changes over the course of the film and really represents his journey in many respects I think but it, yeah it's interesting to think I mean uh, you said before um, Nick that 
John Williams persuaded Lucas to use an original score rather than sort of stitching together or, you know, Kubricking together classical pieces of music. And I think this is a great example of that because Lucas, um, in his notes to Williams, he says the opening title should have um, war drums in space. <laughs> and that's that's his only sort of suggestion. He thought maybe he might put Mars, the bringer of war, Gustav Holst, over the top of this sequence, um, which would work. I can picture it now. I think well, it would work. There's a there's a there's a bit of a link which we'll talk about probably in six hours time um, <laughs> uh, with 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 Mars in in the first scene actually. But for this opening, yeah, you know, I think Williams was. Um, uh, unbelievably right <laughs> in that this needs something bold, something original, uh, and 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 um, uh, it's an idea that develops through the film uh, rather than just setting the tone at the beginning. Yeah, more like a traditional overture, sort yeah. of thing, almost. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, that's what this actually acts like because we do get the 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 crawl going up the screen, uh, and you know we would have opening titles in other films where you would have a sort of overture. Being played, but yes, this is Luke's theme. Uh, so let's uh, let's let's call it Luke's theme from mm-hmm. here on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that will help not mm. confuse things yes. uh, between uh, if you're learning this for the first time between the main theme, main titles theme, and Luke's theme. Luke's theme is what we'll use from here. Mm. Uh, so given that you you've touched on how everything develops, mm. uh, do you have some examples for us, Dan, of, of yeah. how the uh, the melody you know develops? Or at least the the use of um, uh, Luke's theme mm. happens in different guises throughout the entire movie. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it begins. You know, the first time we encounter Luke uh, is uh, you know as the naive waif uh, on Tatooine uh, in his moisture farm, uh, competing with uh, Nicholas Buck's rival. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, and and we get you know the first playing is uh, is is a much more naive um, as we we hear him for the first time. It's so it is so naive. It almost mm. doesn't feel like Star Wars. Yeah. It yeah. feels like a scene at a Wizard of Oz or something. You know, <laughs> Dorothy, come yeah, in. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you know, Luke's being called. I think I, whenever I hear that, that's, that's what the, he is. Yeah. Luke, Luke, yeah. yeah. Come and have some blue milk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's even the way that you, you, know, you were talking about those chords earlier that sort of feel like they're leading on. That that melody feels stagnant. It yeah. feels like it's it's still it's a bit kind of daggy almost. Yeah, and it, and it's it's also because the accompaniment is very stilted as well. It's sort of uh, those chords are hitting on one and three, perhaps, mm. or even just at the beginning of every bar, uh, so that it feels like it's just plodding. You know, it's it's not it's not reaching for the stars at this point. Uh, and I mean, it's it's so brilliant that I mean, one relatively simple theme uh, can be used in so many different ways because you know the next time you sort of start to hear from Luke again, musically speaking, uh, is when he's uh, linking up with uh, Ben Kenobi. Uh, we get this instead.
Uh, yes. I mean, actually, I tell a lie. That's not uh, not quite where he's uh, reached Ben yet. That's uh, when he's sort of wistfully starting to think of his other life um, that he could lead. Yeah, and even that, the difference between that version and the, the version just before is already feeling like it needs to move. And, and I think it's mm. it's um, achieved with those strings. Uh, is it a tremolo is the, the term, I guess? Yes, where, sort of, uh, sh- that shimmering. Underneath. Shimmering strings, yeah, where um, it feels like there's there's this sort of angst, like I you know you sort of need to get out of here. And it's interesting that it's handed around the flute and then into the clarinet. I think there's that sort of really childhood, you know, sort of mm. dreaming with the flute as soon as it goes into clarinet it feels like it's him coming back down to earth a little more mm. um, and it's you know I've always said that I always feel like a solo clarinet feels like a boy mm. um, and by that I mean a young a young boy mm. uh, so it's interesting how it moves through the instruments that way Look, I mean, you mentioned there where Luke is sort of wanting to to leave and do something with his life. You could maybe argue that every time this theme appears when it's not in its traditional heroic brassy version, that it's sort of representing the fact that the theme itself isn't very comfortable in any other guys. So, it's sort of, its destiny lies in being a big, it, its destiny lies in being played by the trumpets at Fortissimo mm. yeah. rather than, you know, meandering around the strings. It's sort of or, trying to keep a lid on something that wants to explode. Yeah. 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 Just like kind of Luke's, mm. doesn't want to stick around the moisture farm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> neither did I for many years. I'm still here. <laughs> We're still going to keep on uh, yeah. keeping, keeping that joke going. I love it. But I mean, I suppose this is this is part of the the, the the point really is this. I mean, a lot of people have uh, analysed Star Wars from the this idea of Joseph Campbell's monomyth. I, I don't know if either, either of you are familiar. Uh, with I, I read yes. his Wikipedia page just the other oh, day. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so George Lucas was writing Star Wars and got to about the third or fourth draft and realised that it sort of wasn't coming together in the same way as he'd hoped. And he'd read a lot of mythology and studies of mythology, and then he discovered this book by Joseph Campbell called The Hero of a Thousand Faces, which basically argues that all mythology, all sort of fantasy, you know, throughout many, many, many different cultures follows the same broad plot or sort of series of modular elements in a cycle, such as, you know, encountering the young naive person who who then, you know, meets someone or has a call to adventure and is mentored by somebody. You know, you could think Lord of the Rings, right? Yep. Um, maybe they try and reject the call. They say, no, I've got to stay uh, in the Shire or I've got to stay in my moisture farm, you know? Uh, and then, you know, go through a series of trials, uh, defeat the father, resolution, uh, etc. There are a few more stages. And George Lucas used this consciously to help him get the draft right. But a lot of people, I have some qualms with this because a lot of people have then said, well, this is the only thing that we need to look at about Star Wars. And actually, I think there's a lot more to it than that. And I think once you sort of impose that analysis on the film, you sort of lose sight of a lot of more interesting things. But it's certainly there. And we can think about it in terms of the music because this is Luke's story. You know, and uh, I guess it it is perhaps some measure of arrogance from George Lucas. Oh, uh, uh, oh! Well, no, uh, Luke Luke was his nickname. Oh, really? In high school, <laughs> it's very conscious. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. yep. yeah. Uh, you know, to sort of make Luke this aspirational boy hero. Was um Luke? Originally called Luke Starkiller. Starkiller, yeah. yeah. Well, there was a whole bunch of different drafts. Originally, was he always Luke though? That's that's really my question. Uh, well, the original hero was a was a woman. Oh, was, really? Was his, okay. his sister it wasn't called Leia at that point, but w- was the sister. And there was Luke and Deke, 
um, oh. the the brothers Ew. who sort of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Deke Stark. Uh, <laughs> no, it does not Deke sound good. Deke, 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 yeah. Um, but uh, you know, uh, Use so the it's force, sort of, Deke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and originally it was the force of others. Um, yes, anyway, look, okay. I'm I, I'm working on a project about Star Wars, as you can possibly tell. It's my research area at the moment. <laughs> uh, hence why I know all these inane details. But uh, listeners at home, uh, we were pre-warned by Dan that we would just have to sort of try and curb him during all of this. Yeah. But I'm enjoying this. No, I'm, it, I'm a Star Wars fan, it, and I'm loving this. In our show notes, I literally wrote try and stop Dan <laughs> um, so I'm really sorry about that um, but anyway the point is about six years ago when I started this the point is that uh, I think Luke's theme develops as you're saying into this final sort of almost martial brass version and it goes from this naive to wistful to you know these sort of different versions we can hear a few more now so this is uh, as you know he's Answered the call to adventure, I suppose, if you want to use Joseph Campbell's words. And we he's, do. Yep. He's, he's becoming more of a hero. Uh, and now he's sort of, you know, uh, getting towards the Death Star. So here, that's just after he's um, they've boarded the Death Star and uh, they've just had their first mini success. Uh, they've commandeered the stormtroopers' uniforms. So you know, it's his first sort of slightly heroic moment. Yeah, and it's, and it's very short-lived. It's sort of in amongst, I guess you could argue, it's a tense moment for everyone. Um, they've just been captured by uh, the Imperial forces. It's William's way of just sort of also using music to just lighten lighten the mood yep. you know they're all right they got out of this one you know mm. let's wait and see what they get into next mm. yeah. sort of thing and then we you know have uh, further development as um, the antics on the death star increase in perilousness and heroicness He's coming, Dan. Yeah. He's on his way. <laughs> I love how it's, it mixes that sort of broad, noble, mm. noble-like kind of um, you know, performance with these sort of terse strings over the top. So it's starting to mix, you know, a bit of positivity and heroism with some darker mm. oppression onto it, you know. Mm. And so we're now, yes, he's doing some heroic stuff slightly, but, you know, is he going to make it out at the other end? Yeah, exactly. You know, things are starting to get more serious. This is when, uh, you know, I think the tractor beam has sh been shut down. That's that sort of uh, bit with the marimbas possibly at the beginning. Um, we're leaving that scene. Uh, and we've, we've had the heroes reunited. They've rescued Princess Leia by this stage. And so we feel like they've had some success, but now, you know, they really got to pull it out to, to, to succeed. So, Dan, where, where in the film do we first hear, uh, I guess, Luke's theme, or like as closely to the main titles? So there are a couple of points. There's one point um, which I'll play right now, which I think is um, as heroic as we get of just on Luke, I think, at least before he gets in his starship. Uh, and that is when, uh, you know, he's having that shootout with the stormtroopers before they do the swing across the chasm. Oh, yeah. The oh, yep. Mm. yep. I love the bit. Yep. And that, that bit actually is uh, peppered with heroic Luke's theme. So this is really where we start to see him personally saving the day almost by himself, although Leia is there doing, you know, a pretty good support job. Mm. <laughs> 
High fives yeah. all around. Uh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, want, I want to hear that cue with just the violins by themselves. <laughs> that is some epic. Yeah. Madness. Yes, that, that's counter lines, if ever you heard it, composers out there. Mm. <laughs> I don't think I had uh, listened to, even in the preparation for this, I hadn't listened to that cue just by itself because, you know, I'm so used to it with all of the explosions and, and mm. you know, laser fire and, you know, laser fire, um, <laughs> <laughs> blaster fire. And, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of unbelievably frantic. And I would mm. argue in some weird way it is as heroic, if not even slightly more uh, than the main titles. Uh, but it's like he's just sprinting at the same time. Mm. Like, I don't know, it's almost like a... You know, frantic. You know, and look, it is, it is a throwback. I've, I've got some of the original handwritten sheet music for sort of scans of this. No, not the original people. It's it's labelled the Swashbucklers on on William's oh, little cue yeah. sheet. Yep. You know, so there you go. probably that's a, a, a you know from the visual element of the guy swing swinging across the chasm. Mm. Yep. Um, but it really harks back to yeah. um, the the over, overt her- heroics yeah. of an early era, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the adventure serial moment yeah. in the yeah. film. Yeah. yeah, And there's possibly not another moment in the entire Star Wars franchise where Luke uh, gets musical treatment that is that well, uh, heroic uh, and positive. Exactly, and I'm not sure whether the B section, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that... Yeah, uh, I mean... It's not used a lot. No. Very, very or, few or, or developed like it is. Kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's really it, it allows him his full full theme to be played out. It's it's unusual in that respect. Yeah, yeah. It could also be. I mean, and this is something we can talk about as we go along. That I sort of wonder how much Williams knew what he was kind of getting into with Star Wars, what mm. it would turn into, how many themes he would write, how many mm. themes he'd have to keep track of and characters. Yeah. How could he possibly know? And, you know yeah, no. I mean, look, unlike <laughs> someone like um, Howard Shaw in Lord of the Rings who mm. reportedly planned mm. a lot of his you know, themes knowing he was going to do three films and mm. possibly six, I, I don't know how much Williams would have no. planned ahead for he, something like this. He, he said... Uh, in every interview I've ever read with him, that he had no idea. He thought okay. that the last time he would hear it would, was when he was at the premiere. Okay, <laughs> you know, see, seeing the film for that first time, or I mean, I don't even know if, I don't think there was a premiere. You know, the first time he saw it uh, in the cinema would be the last time that he heard that music, and then he would forget about it. And he thought he was just doing a children's own adventure Saturday matinee. Is I think the words that he used. And in fact, I mean, that's the same story for everybody. Uh, Steven Spielberg is the only person who claims to have known that it was going to be a hit (laughs) and look I don't know I don't know if I even believe him so I feel like I don't (laughs) and actually we we were just talking about the uh, uh, swashbuckling moment and and harking back to the early era so Dan let's let's actually look at some of those earlier scores Mm. that uh, this main title theme this Luke theme Mm -hmm. uh, you know potentially where Williams got his inspiration from Mm. and importantly uh, what he was presented with as, you know, we were talking about right at the start, how originally George Lucas was thinking that this would be a Stanley Kubrick 2001 Space Odyssey deal where you have a whole bunch of classical music in there. Mm. So this movie was edited to a whole bunch of movie music, classical music mm. as temp tracks and temp tracks Nick being placeholder music for the director to get an idea of how his film is working emotionally with music. Do you know, just on the little sidetrack here, do you know how temp um, tracks are chosen? They're chosen by the director or are they chosen by like a a sound director? Look, these days um, it's primarily the job of the music editor. Okay, right. Um, Back in those days... Look, I'm, I'm not sure. 
I mean, the music editor is the person that kind of cuts it up, you know, edits them and actually places them in the film. I'm sure a director might have some input, but quite often these days, no, they'll, they'll just get a music editor and it's their job to present it to the director with whatever they think works. It, it was a bit of a mix with Star Wars in that the music editor, I believe, tempted some of the film with some tracks that we may talk about later, but with the big choices, it was often in conjunction with George Lucas. Like yeah, he, right. he suggested Mars for the opening, Lucas did, uh, and I think it was um, somebody suggested, they were talking about for um, later on, uh, some Stravinsky uh, and George Lucas actually jumped in and said, we're going to put the writer spring there. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. Um, we've actually got two examples here. Uh, one is going to be the the actual temp track that they used to um, open or well, to edit to that opening title and and uh, title crawl. And then the second one is uh, Dan's going to talk about because this is potentially where John Williams may have got a little bit of his influence from uh, in you know composing that that Luke's theme. But anyway, let, listen to listen to the original uh, temp track, and it's from Ivanhoe which was composed by, uh, I'm going to say his name wrong, uh, Miklos uh, Rocha. Rocha. Yeah, yeah, Rocha. Miklos Rocha. Mm. And uh, here it is, the, the opening to Ivanhoe. There we go, and you can you can almost imagine that that Star Wars logo coming up mm. and that uh, opening crawl uh, happening to that to that theme. Do you know? I never um I never knew that. I never knew it was tempted with with something specific, and I didn't mm. know it was Ivanhoe. So that's the first time I've ever I've ever heard that bit of music. Yeah, we we made that claim at the start. We're going to teach each other things, <laughs> Nick. And we're but look, I mean, good. so as a complete newbie hearing that, I mean. You know, I hear the kind of that that first clang of the chord with the cymbal crash. I mean, it's it's exactly what is what mm. Williams used. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a different key. You know, and it sort of has a bit of a bit of kind of fanfare yeah. stuff going on the trombones before we sort of get into a bit of a theme. However, the overall impression that I'm left with is is one of it's 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 old fashioned. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. You know, and you could argue Star Wars has elements of old fashioned, but something about it is just a bit fresher. Mm. This sounds very much more rooted in classical music than what Williams delivered. Yeah, uh, that could be a harmonic thing. I don't know. But I wouldn't even say classical music. I would say old Hollywood, very specifically. Yeah, yeah I mean, I hear Ben Hur. Yeah, there. well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And Ben Hur. I mean, uh, John Williams directly and specifically pays homage to 
Ben Hur in episode one with the pod race music. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same composer, so. Mm. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I love Miklos Roser. I think, you know, his Spellbound score is fantastic. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can see why you'd also want to build on that. There's some elements there, but it's not quite all there, I think. And, Dan, you actually have the, uh, what is, well, at least you are proposing, and, well, and others have proposed in the past, sort the, of. Yeah, this is the piece that, that analyses of the Star Wars main theme, Luke's theme, the opening credits, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> opening crawl. We said we decided, but we yeah. totally haven't decided. Look, yeah. um, this is what they say uh, that more often than not, people draw this comparison. And that is to King's Row, which is a 1941 film by uh, the score by Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who was really, I think Korngold is probably the, the iconic Golden Age Hollywood composer. Certainly my favourite. Mm. He's got gold in his name, isn't well, he? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah, helps, yeah. yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, and so, okay, here's King's Row. I think you'll hear the similarity. Come on, it is it is so similar. It is. Yeah, it is. Similar. I mean, look, let, let's let's break it down at least. It starts with a triplet. Okay. Yep. I mean, look. First of all, it's written in B major. Star Wars is written in B flat. Mm. So, John, so, you know, Williams flattened it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he should have gone up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, look, if we, you know, if we made that first triplet, you know, rather than leaping down a fourth, if we just keep it the same one. I mean, up until there, it is identical. Yeah. It is absolutely identical. And then where Korngold pauses, you know, and then he kind of... Uh, Williams then leaps upwards. You know, and there it changes a little bit. But I mean, wow, that's, yeah. that's, it's so close. <laughs> and I'm hearing little elements of uh, the Superman theme with mm. a... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the strings yeah. comes in. Yeah. Um, yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, similar vibe. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. So, I mean, Corn Gold, uh, it's no surprise that there's, um, I think, the, the link with Corn Gold because, as I said, he's the emblematic composer of this. But, I mean, he's. It's funny because King's Row is not really quite as emblematic of film at all. I mean, you, for Korngold, you'd look at 
the adventures of Robin Hood or the Seahawk or, you know, stuff like that. I think it's famous because it sounds like Star Wars. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, it's, it's become famous ever since. Because it, of that. It's a film about people growing up in a small American town at the turn of the 20th century. In fact, it stars Ronald Reagan, um, <laughs> which is ironic because Ronald Reagan went on to use Star Wars as uh, sort of the, the name or it was named um, his missile defense program was called yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> and you know, he made that speech about the, the evil empire, which a lot of people took as a reference to be Star Wars. But anyway, so he's in this film, <laughs> King's Row. And yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think that's particularly emblematic, but but uh, Korngold himself, uh, absolutely. So, you know, there had to be some sort of influence in there somewhere. Absolutely. And yep. especially as, like I said, you know, uh, one of other John Williams' great scores with, with Superman, they've also got that element that we just discussed. And it's obvious, you know, it's probably, a, you know, a favourite mm. of, yep. of John Williams. So... Uh, and I think it's actually really important when we when we're going to talk about these uh, these temp tracks and and these mm. influences, like we always uh, chuck out there as our our disclaimer, is that uh, you know we're not at all poo pooing the idea of oh, yeah. you know having influences and uh, and certainly in the idea of um, being presented with temp music. That's such a specific thing. And and with John Williams being relatively early on in his career, you know, being brought onto a movie you know a little bit later. You know, given the the job of we want it to sound like this, and so what do you do? Well, you have to do your best. Yeah, um, and you, you have to never forget that. And look, film composers, I think, whenever I speak to them, that's the biggest irk of the whole business is that at the end of the day, it is a committee that you're dealing with of people to present your music to. You know, directors, producers. These days, there's heaps of them, <laughs> mm. um, especially producers. So you know, it's a collaborative effort. It's not just this is my piece, this mm. is my music. You know, like it or lump it. it it's really you know, it, it's a vote, um, and, and it is a collaboration. And composers don't exist in a vacuum. No, no. you know, there's music all around them, and they have their influences. Mm. Just like I'm sure there's as many influences in the shots and the camera angles oh, and stuff. Well, you know, it's not more. <laughs> no, absolutely. And this is the thing that I think is is actually I should have said right at the top is that Star Wars the film is an amalgamation of so many different things from samurai movies to western specific you know we can talk about uh, the Hidden Fortress the Kurosawa film and the influence that had on Star Wars or um, you know the searches is shot for shot referenced when Luke returns to the burning homestead I mean there are so many films in this the opening crawl comes directly from Flash Gordon directly um, and you know so the, the the film itself is a patchwork and that is the beautiful thing about it is that it takes all of these different ideas that are so successful and turns it into something new and that is exactly what the music yeah, and does packages well. up for a new generation yep. of, of film goers yep. and music lovers as well yep so to finish maybe talking about Luke's theme I think it might be useful to just just jump forward to the end of the film where we've been talking about maybe this sort of charts his transition across you know the film from naive kid on Tatooine in a backwater to being a hero who saves the galaxy. Well, in the final dogfight, I mean, we really get that trials, the, the the belly of the beast, the fight against the father, that that sort of, you know, mythological moment, if we're going to talk about Joseph Campbell, that the music really reflects this striving, you know, we get this, this beautiful version of Luke's theme. Uh, here we go.
And I mean, there's uh, there's what three different statements of yeah in a row there. Each. It reminds me of our first episode talking about Indiana Jones where we were talking about how the theme was being crushed by like the truck. Yeah. Here it feels like Luke's theme is really, it's 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 trying, but that, that last performance with those really angular, mm. hum, those weird harmony, harmonic strings there, yeah, it, it's in pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's about to lose, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, totally. And it feels like it's it's climbing. Like it's, yep. it's I just imagine. It's well, climbing I, under oppression. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I sort of imagine the mountain. There is no mountain in the film, yes. but I imagine him trying to scale that mountain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, it, it just goes to show, you know, John Williams' uh, incredible skills as a composer to write this, this, this melody, which works as an opening fanfare in a really interesting and unique kind of way. And then becomes naive and then sort of hopeful and wistful and then a little bit more heroic and then swashbuckling and then trying and pained and agonized. It's uh, it's a great, great uh, illustration of his skills, I think. And what a masterclass in doing amazing things with such a little amount of music, mm. you know. Yep. Phenomenal. And I mean, I think probably then just, just to finally end us, it's, it's maybe worth just cutting forward to the new era of Star Wars films and just reminding us of, of this that appears in Rogue One, the most recent film. This is <laughs> there's there's no Luke's theme in Rogue One, Luke and none of the Skywalkers, I suppose Darth Vader is in it briefly, but it's not a, a Skywalker story. And so in lieu of a opening crawl or opening title, we get this. Uh, yeah, look, I think there are good things that that score does, and that is at the bottom of the list. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Giacchino. I actually, maybe we'll get onto that score at a a later date, uh, Mm. because I do actually think there's an awful lot of um, wonderful things to discover in that score, but like you said, I... Don't think that is one of them. I know. So, then we just let, let's have a look at the music very briefly. It's it was like an inverse. So yeah. you know, it does that opening fifth instead of going down. This one goes up and then does something else. But, Why? Yeah. Why would you do something so similar and yet not? Follow yeah, it's through. almost inviting yeah. comparison in not the best way. Yeah. So who knows? But uh, yeah, the guy had four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, let's move on, guys. Uh, to um, our female S- hero Sister Yeah, mm. Sister Well, we don't know that at the moment But uh, mm. yes, uh, Princess Leia's theme mm-hmm. Who's Luke's sister if you've never seen the film? Sorry <laughs> <laughs> So Spo- keen Spoilers for 1983 so keen. Yeah. so keen to spoil yep. uh, So yeah, this is uh, Princess Leia's theme And um, actually, let's just Before we, we talk about any of it Let's actually just get right into it And, um, and here it is uh, Princess Leia's theme
And there we go. It's um, probably really important to point out that that particular version of Princess Leia's theme actually doesn't appear in the movie. Mm. Uh, and it's appeared on the whole pile of the soundtracks. And it's certainly on, on our version of the soundtrack. And it's actually a little suite that was put together by John Williams uh, for the mm. soundtrack. But it doesn't actually appear in the film that way. Mm. And I must admit that I always thought it did. <laughs> and I had only relatively recently, I'm talking maybe the last you know few years, suddenly realised, wait a minute, it actually is never in there. Mm. Um, and what gives it away is that opening little um, little introduction mm. on, on the woodwinds that it never actually appears that way. So anyway, it's a really lovely plane of that theme. So I thought it might be a, a nice way to kick off this little section. Yeah. You know, Andrew, when you mentioned that it's like a concert version, can I ask you guys, like before Star Wars... Uh, like, is this the first time Williams ever introduced this kind of idea of like the concert version? Because he he did it. He's done it through every single Star Wars film and even other other films of his. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of film music before Star Wars and what the norm was. I can think of pop songs and maybe like you know you think of people like Henry Mancini where mm. something like you know Moon River was like a, a, a sure. inverted commas you know the hit or the single you know and often an overture would would have been mm. famous on a soundtrack but to actually have a version that isn't anywhere in the film and is yeah. like just a concert piece of music as like a companion I can't I can't think off the top of my head of anything existing before Star Wars. Yeah, you might have like a, a something that's put together into like an overture, like uh, Bernard Herrmann put together the the Hitchcock Suite from The Trouble with Harry. Yeah. But you know, no, you're right. And part of that is that you know uh, this film as well starts uh, more than any other film starts the the trend of people releasing soundtracks on vinyl as kind of a collector edition that someone's going to go out and, and pay, but also as a means of making money from the film as well. Yeah, um, which you know wasn't. Anywhere near as widespread. Maybe uh, John Williams predicted his exceedingly uh, successful concert career, which yeah. is, I mean, how many concerts has he done where he's performed all his hits in mm. their concert versions? I mean, well, I mean, be, being an orchestra guy, I had heard, and I do hope this is sort of not one of those rumours that goes around the, the industry, but I'd heard that because of the success of Star Wars, the instant success, and now all of a sudden uh, fans, you know, the general public, were into orchestras mm. because, you know, what a massive part of this score is is the you know, the orchestral soundtrack. So all of a sudden the orchestras at the time saw an opportunity mm -hmm. to play this in concert and get young people mm. um, in the doors. Mm -hmm. It's one of the original, you know... Uh, ideas and which now orchestras have been doing for a long time but people were doing bootleg versions so people were <laughs> transcribing you know the, the mm. their best version of the score to play in concert and of course they were all not very good mm. and John Williams caught wind of this very quickly and thought to himself I could either squash this or I could release them properly Mm. And um, in actual fact, to his credit, you're talking about making lots of money. To his credit, he could have charged an awful lot of money for those scores. But he actually said, no, I want orchestras to be able to make money from this mm. because I love orchestras and I want them to survive. So if they're going to make some money and get some new audiences and, and have you know young people fall in love with the orchestra and it's going to be through my music, well, fine. So he actually ended up putting together all of these official suites very, very early on in the, in the movie's life. And, you know, sold them to orchestras where they could own the parts. 
Mm. And that was really unusual because normally you had to wait for things to get out of copyright before you could own the parts at any kind of, you know, affordable way. And he said, no, just for a few hundred dollars, you can own the parts, you can have them, you can play them as many times as you want, no royalties needed. And orchestras all around the world embraced that. And, wow. you know, yes, maybe he didn't get amazingly rich out of the the publishing rights, but he certainly <laughs> has made um, an unbelievable career out of conducting it himself and, you know, and people discovering his music all around the world. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's the end of my little orchestra rant there. No, well, I mean, it's uh, you know, I, I think it's uh, no exaggeration at all to say that the success of Star Wars, the score, played a role in keeping orchestras yeah. afloat. And this could be his very the very first concert kind of suite. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah it, very, it could be. It could be. Yeah. If you know at home, maybe <laughs> you're you're out there listening, going, "I know this, I know this." Yeah. Get in touch. Get in touch on Twitter mm. and uh, correct us. And that goes for probably anything. If you if you think we're <laughs> wrong, uh, we'd love to we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if we think you're right. Mm. Get in touch as well. Uh, anyway, so Princess yeah. Leia's theme. So um, Princess Leia's theme. Yeah, look, we we've we kind of touched on it very briefly mm. in our first episode of Raiders, and the reason is is because this was the first Williams theme to that he ever wrote that began with this, I guess, romantic major sixth that we've talked about so often. You know, and uh, we've discussed. I won't go into it too much. You know, similarities to Marion's theme. And of course, from the uh, Empire Strikes Back, Han Solo and the Princess. But really, Princess Leia's theme is where is where it all began. And apart from this major sixth, uh, Williams kind of marries it with the the harmony of a, a tonic chord in this case, D major, um, going to a minor version of the fourth. So this, that'll be to G minor. So. And something about those two chords just really being a very romantic um, and, and just beautiful pr- progression. And the theme is much more, it's much more innocent and gentle than I'd say something like Marion's theme and even Hansel and the Princess in my eyes. And it probably marries, I guess, you know, how we, how we see Princess Leia when, when we first meet her. Um, she's sort of shrouded in this this white kind of mm. gown, those famous bun bun <laughs> ears. Mm. Um, and look, it turns out she is a pretty. She's kind of she's a bit feisty, isn't she? Actually, yeah. in the end. Well, I mean, it, it, but she's know, still she's a princess. Yeah, yeah. We we spoke a little bit uh, about this with Marion's theme that it actually doesn't quite mirror how it plays out, and mm. that's probably true with this to an extent as well. And I'll, I want to talk about that in a moment as to how the theme develops over the course course of the film. But you know, John Williams has also talked about in interviews about his use of the French horn. He feels like the French horn speaks to something deeper, something older, uh, more more royal, more regal, uh, and that that you know that. That's what's going on, I think, with this orchestrated version yep. in the suite. The first time we hear it in the film, though, is on oboe, mm. um, which well, we I mean, uses a lot. We, well. we can hear that now, actually.
I stand corrected. It is a trumpet, <laughs> a, a muted trumpet. A muted trumpet. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, I mean, it's interesting as well because in that in that playing of it, we don't really hear its beautiful, graceful qualities. It's quite rushed. It's just an interval. Da, yeah. Da, da, da. Yeah. And it's yeah, when yeah. Um, Princess Leia is putting the uh, the Death Star plans mm. into um, into R two D two. Yeah, and I mean, you know, like it's, I, you know, I think to me, actually, to be completely honest, especially because this is a theme that has not been overused by the subsequent sequels and prequels it's used very sparingly in the other films this to me is probably the theme that is most nostalgic for the original film and certainly you know i don't know if either of you saw recently for the uh, 40th anniversary event that they held in uh, san francisco for star wars celebration george lucas showed up after they'd done this not george lucas john williams showed up after they'd done this wonderful tribute to carrie fisher and they, uh, he played with an orchestra, played Princess Leia's theme. And if you go back and watch it, the French horn player, you you watch it and you think, oh, that's he's having a bit of a, a, a tough time playing this melody. And then actually, I think he's uh, I think he's shedding a tear. Oh, is he crying <laughs> while he's while he's playing? Oh, that's great. And I I, I mean, it just. It to me, yeah, yeah, like it does. I, I think it's a really beautiful piece of music. Maybe it doesn't reflect Princess Leia as we see her, but, you know, it's... Uh, it, 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 yeah, I, I agree that it is very nostalgic and it really mm. makes you fond of the original. Yeah. yeah, And possibly for that reason that it isn't used a huge, mm. great deal. And so it does develop as we go on. You know, when we start to see uh, Princess Leia as, you know, uh, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, we uh, get perhaps the first really beautiful rendition of it. Are you redeemed, Nick? Yeah, there, there's Yerba. <laughs> right. Man, isn't that so beautiful, the way it just gets passed from those yeah. woodwinds and yeah. then finished on the horn? It, there's, so much, there's so much hope packaged into that little yep. sequence there. Yep. Yep. That it, For me, that's almost like the first time in the film where you're like, oh, there's, there's something greater out there. There's, there's, there's mm. a bit more yep. of that myth. And, and hope is the word. Yep. Um, and you know, a new hope, mm. and and hope. Mm-hmm. You know, we we're talking about Rogue One. Really, that's mm. that's actually the theme of the entirety of Rogue One is the idea of hope, and yep. um, it's packaged no better than in that little little sequence. And it, and it, you know, uh, George Lucas has said many many times that the reoccurring theme of all of his films, which for a very long time was only three films: THX, American Graffiti, and Star Wars, was the idea of someone discovering a larger world than than they know of and their place within it, and that is a musical summation of the moment where Luke realizes, oh, these droids I've got, they're, they're the key. They're mm. the key to me getting out of here. They, they know about the rebellion versus the empire. This beautiful woman, I uh, don't know it's my sister yet, but this beautiful <laughs> woman is, uh, you know, like an apparition before me. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of returns that similar performance of it. Uh, it's much, much the same when we finally get the full message unlocked. 
do you feel that the once again those those shimmery strings up high it always feels to me like they're you know how the she's the the blue hologram mm. and it's and it's sort of flickery yeah it's like the static yeah almost yeah, all yeah of that, the, of they're that the message. flickery they're the flickery message yeah. you know mm. um, but it's also um, there's something a magical you know with yeah. the harp kind of swirling yep. up there the totally. strings are shimmering mm. it's like it's like you know as well as a hologram shimmering, it's sort of like magic fairy dust, and yeah. it's it's totally presented as magic, isn't it? I yeah. Mean, ha- had she come to them through a crystal ball or through yeah, a sure. you know a vision, it would mm. be just it would be the same scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm. It's just that they and, put and technology the, in there. And but the chords are always you know the harmonies slowly kind of rising very subtly, you know. Um, you know, with every mm. phrase, it just sort of rises slightly. So, oh, a bit more magic, a bit more magic. It's yeah. growing, it's growing magic. Yeah, that's you right. Know? Yeah, um, because the harmony is slightly different between those two playings. And yeah. And the second time, it's a little bit more solid, a little bit more like we, we're getting somewhere. Yeah. 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 You know, those leaps, uh, you know, by the end, then it goes an octave. Mm. Mm. Yeah, as opposed to, mm. which is usually done, that second one goes up. Mm. How does it get away with that? Yeah. How does he get away with that? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. he just totally changes the interval and still is able to use it. Like, mm. yeah. it's... Because um, <laughs> he didn't read the, the textbook, uh, how, to, how to Use Themes yeah. Religiously in, uh, in Films. It's so wonderful. Yeah. I love it. Um, it's just the, you know, the flexibility of these themes. It just, yeah. I think that's what makes them iconic, is that he just manages to find ways of hinting at them with two notes, with three notes. Yep. And you can just refer to something effortlessly. So it doesn't matter what key you're in, doesn't matter what mood you're in, you mm. chuck in that interval, you chuck in that little vibe and you know you're you're harking back to that that thing. So and so interesting then is how it develops over the rest of the film as in it doesn't really. So let me just play you the first time that we have the the repeat of this where Luke meets Leia for the first time and we see her in person, you know, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? Uh, that <laughs> moment where there are some interesting musical ideas going on that mirror what we've heard before, but it becomes more concrete. Here we go. What are those horns doing? Mm. Oh, they sound like barking dogs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really, I don't even know what they're doing. Yeah, like I'm going to check out that cue again later. In, it, in it, it. I think it's almost like a trill, but between, between yeah, like it just three sounds intervals. like it's, sort of, yeah. it's being gobbled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but you know, it's repeating that sort of shimmering. But now it's in low yeah. instruments, and we get this really high version, uh, which is really interesting. And, and uh, the, the fascinating thing for me is that Leia's theme from the score actually kind of disappears once we, once she appears. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, once they become sort of up. heavily involved with yeah, our lead character. Exactly. Yeah. And she actually becomes more associated with the rebel fanfare. Oh, yeah, I was we'll just about, about to say, later. she turns from princess to rebel yeah. uh, very quickly. Yeah. So, mm. Except for one key moment. Lay it on the stand. I think I know the one. Yeah, I, I, th- I find this extremely controversial. But yeah. Let's- so let 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 me let me play this. Here we go. That, of course, 
is uh, the score accompanying Leia's tragic moment. No, <laughs> it's it's accompanying the death of Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, how weird is that? Yeah, like what that make? I can't even. I was just thinking maybe I'll just say why I think that works. I don't know why it works. Mm. Why does it work? Does it work? Look, it works musically on a purely emotional level. I mean, mm. it's it's. And I mean, look, we'll, we'll get into Ben Kenobi's theme, you know, after this. But the alternative would be to play uh, a tragic version of Ben Kenobi's theme, which is the Force theme. Um, but I think, arguably, this is possibly more um, flexible in a kind of really tense, mm. um, impassioned performance like this. So maybe Williams is sort of. Uh, this could be an example of him not expecting a film to yeah. to have a sequel and just I'm going to use a really impassioned. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm waffling. I actually don't know. It, it doesn't make any logical yeah. sense. I mean, could it be that it? because Princess Leia, at least at the start, is the heart, you know, the hope, and that it's John now, Williams it's now down to her sort of thing. No, not necessarily, <laughs> but that. Um, in the same way that her theme doesn't come back in later because she, you know, turns into more that rebellion thing, that the theme then becomes not necessarily Princess Leia per se, but it becomes the 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 soul, the heart, um, you know, the the lovely thing. Mm. And because he has been struck down, then from a vibe point of view, it's the only theme that exists that allows you to put out an idea of a heart or a. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm I feel I'm waffling too because. Well, look, yeah. the, it comes down to this. The the fundamental basis that we've been analysing this film and most of the scores in this entire podcast series so far is that leitmotif as a system functions with musical ideas that can be developed in particular contexts. And what we're faced with here is the complete abandonment of that idea where one person's theme has been played over something that has got nothing to do with them. And so, <laughs> I think the simplest answer is is the obvious one, is that uh, it just works. It's musically yeah, that, that's beautiful. That's what I think too. And, and it makes no logical sense whatsoever. Because it, it didn't stand out. Like when you watch the film, it doesn't stand no. out. Yeah. It's only when you go back and, and analyze mm. that you go, wow, what? Well, yeah. why, is that, yeah. why is that happening? Yeah. And look, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it soon, but the, the very lead up to that moment, it does play Ben's theme, you know, yep. in a very still presentation just on solo horn. So this kind of like, just like his death is quite a shock to the system, yeah. by changing music is also a bit of a, a musical shift and a musical yeah. jolt. You know, if he just sort of then swelled up and played the force theme even bigger, like in the binary sunset, you know, it starts mm. with, with solo French horn, swells to the strings. Uh, I'm not sure it would work. As well. I like that reading. I think yeah. that maybe a little bit jarring providing you with new subject material. Uh, yeah, yeah sure. The, the pace completely changes. It's mm-hmm. like it really kind of kicks yep. kicks into gear. Yep. Yep. What's um, happening? Something's happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, that's the best best uh, analysis I've I've thought of. We did it, guys. Yeah, yep. we did it. Um, can I play you my favorite little moment from Princess Leia's theme? Please Once do. again, I'm pretty confident this is from the uh, the the suite or the concert version. Mm. But John Williams just does the, he does this so well, and it, it happens in lots of other scores. But you know, listening to this theme again, I was like, oh man, this is such a great little moment. It's towards the end of the uh, Princess Leia's theme cue, let's just jump straight in and hear what John Williams is is developing here. French horns over the top, really gorgeous. (laughs) 
And it's this bit here. <laughs> it's, it's it's gorgeous. Oh, I mean, and that, that is the kind of film music. I mean, it's not even heard in uh, that that level of romanticism and mm. sort of old school romanticism is not even heard in the other Star Wars films, let no. alone other Williams films, let alone anybody else's film music. A, a little bit in Across the Stars in Episode Two, maybe. Sorry, yeah. yes, mm. you're true. But right look, there, yeah. Andrew, I would say that that performance you just played is the most similar to that Ben Kenobi death scene. Mm. That's true. That's uh, true. Of Princess yeah, Leia, yeah, yeah. that really impassioned. So mm. certainly yeah. at the start, there sounded very similar in terms of the instrumentation, yeah. and mm. um, but it's those French horns with those yeah. little uh, yeah, yeah yep. little sort of tension and release there, and yeah, yeah, yeah it's really so gorgeous. Yeah. Mm. And then it just rising and rising impossibly and you're like he has to resolve it he has to resolve it and he doesn't and he keeps on going higher and higher until it finally you know and they really set it up it's so wonderful that Mm. you know he doesn't try to be smart with it he's like here it comes here's the payoff and he gives it to you and it's yeah such a wonderful moment just as a quick aside Mm. I most associate that actually with the Star Wars radio dramatizations done by NPR uh, in in, uh, the first one was 1981 which is uh, terrific I highly advise anybody listening out there to track them down they're fantastic actually they've got Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniel and a few other of the original actors in there but um, they make magnificent use of John Williams score including that moment in a few different scenes in the in the the episodes, it's just fantastic. Anyway, well, let's um let's let's put a link of that in the in the show notes um for people who are listening on the iPod uh and and people who are on the website uh and uh, you know we'll put a little link in there that you can mm. go check out those um, radio plays because they really are, are gorgeous. Mm. Hey guys, I think we've got to leave it there. Sure, but we're going to be back. We'll be back with more, and that brings us to the end of part one of our analysis of Star Wars. Uh, We'll be back next episode to continue our exploration of this amazing, amazing score. Uh, We hope you enjoyed yourself. And if you did, go ahead and press subscribe and write us a review on iTunes. That sort of stuff really helps us get the word out there. Tell your friends, tell all your your Star Wars fan mates uh, about this podcast. We'd love for everyone to to hear it and and to tell us what you think. If you've got any questions about the scores we talk about or you want to request a score, which a a few people have been doing, uh, then hit us up on Twitter at Art of the Score or Instagram also at Art of the Score. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Pogson. That's Dan Golding. May the force be with you. And he's Nicholas Buck. I find your lack of faith disturbing. (laughs) And this was Art of the Score.